morning. I wanted to um, to uh, talk about this book a little. Um, Hercules Collins is the author. It's a pretty cool name. Uh, the title is An Orthodox Catechism. Some of you might have heard of the the uh, the Belgic Confession. This was a a 17th century. Calvinistic Baptist redo, reworking of that 16th century catechism. And it's a catechism, questions and answers. Whenever I'm in Central California and I'm speaking to a group and I say catechism, you know, the first thing we think, Sister Juan Maria, (laughs) who used to take the sticks off the... Yeah, and put your hands out or draw a circle on the chalkboard if you talk too much. And you had to stick your nose on it. Anybody have to do that? I never had to do that. My brothers told me about it. <clears throat> anyway, this is an excellent catechism. Very. One of the reasons why people like this is because, um, not that the Westminster Shorter Catechism is bad. It's not bad. It's just different. It's written by British guys in the 17th century. And it's more more teachy, more didactic. This is more is very teaching, very didactic, but it's very personal and warm. I guess that's the word uh, uh, I would like to use. But it's an excellent excellent devotional tool. You can read it for family worship. We've done that before. I think we we're through almost the second time for family worship. It's very. Uh, it asks the question and then it gives the answer. And there's scripture citations at the bottom. So you can have a lot of interaction, and I don't know what the price is, but it's very good. I think it's the best price in the world of all those books on that book table uh, this morning. Okay, this session is going to be briefer than uh, the last one, hopefully, um, by design, because the last one, I mean last night's. Because the third session, because there's nothing after that, I just get to leave, it's going to be long. Okay. And then I'm just going to leave so I don't have to hear about, that was long. And, and I think the third session is the most important one. Uh, these are both foundational, uh, last night's and this one. So, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. It's 9.29, hopefully by about 10, 10, 10.15, we'll take a break, and then we'll get right back into it. Uh, but do you remember what we're doing is we're asking and answering three questions. Um, first question was last night, why study the biblical covenants between God and man? And I tried to show you why we should do that. The Bible structured around covenants and uh, is climaxed in, in the revelation of the incarnate Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's all intertwined with all the, the covenants of, of the Bible. I didn't show you how, I'm just stating that. It would take a lot more than three sessions to show you how all that works out. But So we're just flying by, flying over in one sense. Why well, study the, the biblical covenants between God and man? That was last night. And then the next uh, question, which we'll discuss now, is what is a covenant between God and man? Uh, I purposely said, what is a covenant between God and man? Because there are covenants in the Bible between man and man. And there are covenants outside the Bible, between man and man, man and woman, where we have an agreement, a relationship based on commitments. And if we 
violate our commitments, there's sanctions, there's potential punishments, there's, uh, and if we obey, agree with, and comply with the sanctions, the, 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 the conditions of the covenant, there's, there's promises, there's blessings. We, we have those kinds of things. Um, but the difference between a covenant between man and man and God and man, well, there are a lot of differences, but the main difference is God. He imposes sovereignly brings them to us and we don't negotiate them um, I'm, I'm glad my wife when I asked her will you marry me um, I included that with and you, you have until our salad comes to give me your answer <laughs> she didn't respond and say well let me think about that for a while okay I put the pressure on her. You can't eat salad, and I'm not paying for your dinner unless you say yes before the salad comes. But it's not that way with divine covenants with man. Okay, It's not negotiation. We'll deal with that this morning. And then the third question, which I think is the most uh, important uh, of the three, what is the first covenant between God and man revealed to us in the Bible? And so we'll, we'll deal with that issue um, next hour. So, here's our question. What is a covenant between God and man? And I have some headings here. Oh, a basic definition. There you go. A divine covenant with man can be defined very briefly as follows. A divinely, that means it comes from God, sanctioned commitment or relationship. That means it has some sort of... Um, stipulations connected to it. You do this, I'll do this. You do this, I'll do this. You know, those kind of things. That's a very simple uh, definition. If you've read any, and some of you I'm sure have, on covenant theology, one of the things you'll find that, that boggles at least my mind is that if you have five different authors, you often have five different definitions for the word covenant. And a lot of times, it's because somebody will pull their concordance down, look up the word covenant, look up the 9,322 times or whatever it, it, it occurs in the Bible. By the way, nobody ever does that with the word and, right? <laughs> but and doesn't always mean, doesn't always function as a simple conjunction between two parts. It has other functions. But nobody thinks that way. Anyway. These word study things. So what they do is they get a concordance. They look at all the uses of the word covenant. In the books of Moses, it's used this many times. In you know, the prophets, it's used this many times. In the writings, it's used this, this many times. In the gospels, it's used this many times. In the epistles, it's used... You know, they just keep... They go through all that. And then they'll put up there, you know, the, word, the, the number 4,022 or whatever. And you're sitting there going, wow, that's impressive. How long does it take you to do a word search on a computer? Doom. It's not impressive, okay? You can do that. Anybody can do that. A two-year-old, six-month, two-month-old can, you know, roll a little and hit the button and it, word search comes up, okay? It's not how many times a word's used. And so what people do sometimes, they look at all the times it's used and then they read the contexts, okay? And then they take the totality of all the meanings of it and try to shove it into a definition. It doesn't work, work. We don't use words that way. Uh, for instance, series. 
what does the word series mean, teacher? And you're, here's what she should say. She's probably thinking this. It depends on how that word is used in a given context, right? Because I'm preaching or teaching a series of lectures or ser- lectures. These aren't sermons. These are lectures, right? And let me just get another example of the word series in a different context. Um, the San Francisco Giants have won three of the last five world series, okay? Right? So it's words take on their meaning based on their use in context. I'm giving fists down here. Low fist. You don't wear that on the Lord's Day at church, do you? That... So, uh, what I tried to do in this definition is take uh, what's common in all of its subsequent uses. What's, what's common in the meaning of the word covenant? Um generically speaking. And that would be something like this, a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. A very helpful book that I read many years ago on this issue said, uh, 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 um, enacted in blood. But the problem with that is the word covenant is used to define marriage sometimes. Marriages can be bloody, right? uh, the Noahic, I almost said the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant, there's, there wasn't blood to inaugurate the covenant there. So that's, that's too limited. So we have to, it has to be a broad enough definition. And then when you go to the texts in the Bible that use the word covenant, you allow the context to tell you uh, to fill out its broader meaning. Okay, just like the, the, the illustration with World, world, world Series. <clears throat> By the way, there's, there's two, two uses, two words there in that phrase, World Series. I, I illustrated a series of sermons and a series of games. Okay, There's commonality there, right? But there's, there's discontinuity, discommonality as well. The word world is the same. World means, you know, like world means world, and that's all world always means. Well, the world can mean the earth. The globe. It could also mean uh, the winners of the world series, the last three of the five years, where the world, the entirety of the populated world, does not play baseball. Okay, matter of fact, not even all the nations of the earth have baseball teams that could potentially win this what we call the World Series. Even with that, not all the baseball teams in our country. Um, can potentially win it. You have to be a major league baseball team to win the World Series. So when you define the word world in the phrase World Series, it gets pretty narrow, doesn't it? It's pretty small. It's just a few teams. Uh, matter of fact, in the last three to five years, it's only been the same team every time. So covenant's the same. All words are that way, by the way. Uh, they take on their meaning based on their use and context, but there's a, there's a generic root meaning to it that can branch out depending on how it's used. So, in this sense, a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship, covenants come from God to man. That's the, the word divinely. That means it comes from God. This is a, this is a God thing. God is, God, is, um, God is revealing himself 
to man. And he does that through covenant. They're not contracts between equal business partners. Some of you probably are in some sort of line of work where you have to try to sell something or there's, there's give and take, you know, there's push and shove. There's, there's, here's what I like to do. Why don't you take it home, think about it, sleep on it for a week. Let's get together. Give me a call. That's not divine covenants. We don't see any place God saying, by the way, Adam, I created you. Now I'm going to put you in a garden. I'm going to give you a wife. I'm going to give you some stipulations. There's some blessings. There's some curses. Why don't you sleep on it? Let me know what you think. Come back with, with you know, your, your pushback. It's not, it's not like that. Covenants are, divine covenants are imposed, they're sovereignly imposed by God on man. Therefore, they're reflective of God's will, God's purpose. They're connected to an eternal purpose. Uh, Nehemiah Cox, I don't know. I have, go to the next slide. Stop there. Uh, Nehemiah Cox is a is one of my favorite older writers from the 17th century. He says this that covenants are revealed to man. And you have to kind of listen carefully for the advancing and bettering of his state. So here's what he's saying: We study the Bible. We can say this: When God reveals a covenant to man, it's not to leave him in the state or condition he's presently in. It's somehow to give him a better state or condition. The divine covenants are not nearly, merely intended to sustain man in the condition he was in prior to the covenants being revealed to him. They are in some sense, as Cox says, for the bettering of his state. Now, I'm camping on that because next hour we're going to get to this for the bettering of his state. By going back to the, the pre-fall state of Adam and doing a biblical theology, the Bible's theology of the condition or state that Adam was not only created in, but covenanted into, I think I'm going to show you. And whether or not Adam could have bettered his state. And if he could have, what would it have been? Some people think, oh, that's just vain speculation. I don't think it is. So if that's what a covenant is, part of its uh, definition is that it seeks to bring men to a better state or condition. They're imposed on man by God for the advancing, Cox says, and the bettering of his state. So we could say this, improvement and betterment in some sense are built into all covenants that God makes with man. In other words, covenants have promises of blessing attached to them. Okay, so that man mean, means if you comply with the, with the condition of the promise, you get the blessing of the promise. And it puts you in a better state or condition or relationship. In other words, covenants have promises of blessing attached to them. God promises blessing to man if the condition of the covenant under consideration is met. Now, that's very carefully qualified there. If the condition of the covenant under consideration is met. Okay? Remember I said covenant means what it means based on its use in any given 
and all its given contexts. So when I say God promises blessing to man if the condition of the covenant under consideration is met, I'm assuming we're looking at a specific condition of a specific covenant that's revealed to us in the Bible. It's not a generic thing that necessarily applies in the same way to all biblical covenants. It applies only to those covenants that we're specifically looking at that have conditions for promises and um, for uh, blessings. So I think there's a heading number two someplace, the specific concern of divine covenants. Nope. Did I just do that? No, it's a previous one, previous page. That's it. Thank you. That's where we kind of parse out what Nehemiah Cox said. Specific concern of divine covenants is this. They involve a declaration of God's sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits he will bestow on man, the communion man will have with God, and the ways and means by which this will be enjoyed by them. So I kind of parse that out here. Covenants have to do specifically with the benefits God will bestow on man. We'll just call those blessings. The communion man will have with God, the type of communion, type of relationship. And the way and means by which this will be enjoyed are how we obtain the blessings and the relationship promised by God. In the Bible, there's, there's actually uh, there's two ways between, uh, concerning divine covenants with man. Uh, that we obtain the blessings and relationships promised by God. One way is by our doing, our works. Okay, there are works or obedience-based covenants with promises and curses based on our obedience or lack of it. Not ours, but man's generically or whoever is in the covenant with God. So there's those type, type of covenants. And then there's the other type of covenant that we'll just call belief or faith. We get... The blessings, we get the relationship because we believe the promise of God concerning the blessing and the promises. Okay, so one is our doing, one is our believing. One is works, one type, one is faith. Uh, one is obeying the law of the covenant, the other is receiving the benefits by believing in the promises. And the older writers would say law and Gospel. They don't need me to teach them. They already knew this. Let's just take a break and have some donuts. No, go give me that cup of coffee. Okay, uh, the second, the, oh, we're down at the bottom. Divine covenants are concerned with the benefits God bestows. Listen, divine covenants come from the, the kind, condescending, condescending love of God for his creatures. Okay? He didn't have to do this. Uh, but God is in the business of, of not only creating man, the image of God, sustaining him, but he's going he's gonna to take him to glory no matter what, even if man messes it all up. Uh, divine covenants are concerned with the benefits God bestows, the type of communion man may have with God, and the means to obtain these things. I think the next slide has an interesting heading. Yeah. How do you like that one? Further delineations upon divine covenants with men. 
The preacher knows what that is. You got more to say, don't you? This is like a footnote or a PS. It's like, I didn't know what to call this heading, so I just called it further delineations. That means I got more to say about this. I'm going to try to tease this out, and then we're going to actually do something. We didn't do much last night. There's a Bible right there. It's got some dust on it. We're going to actually read texts of Scripture. Um, I remember I was at the Master's Seminary. I graduated in the Master's Seminary in 1989. Um, and John Gershner, who you've heard of R.C. Sproul. You know how R.C. Sproul talks like this, and I don't just don't know God's sovereign and all that. Well, I, didn't, I was wondering, what is wrong with this guy? Until I met John Gershner, his theological mentor. And John Gershner came to our seminary and spoke. He spoke two or three times to, to the... Uh, to the staff and faculty and student body. And uh, the last day was Q&A. And one of the students, I was running the mic back. We had a cord, and you had to run the mic back to this, whoever was asking the question. I had to run the mic back up here. And then a few times, because Dr. Gershner was hard of hearing, he would run back there and say, Rich, I just need to get my head over there and listen to him. With my, with, you know, he'd, he'd run, and then he'd cross. He pulled the cord out one time, and the thing started, you know, all this. Anyway. One of the questions was, Dr. Gershner, this is your, you, you've given us three lectures and you haven't opened your Bible once. And Dr. Gershner said, young man, we're doing theology. I did my exegesis 40 years ago. And it was quiet. What he said was very biblical. As a matter of fact, he preached from Psalm, one of the Psalms. His last lec- lecture was a sermon. He said it was, a, it was not verbatim, but it was a Jonathan Edwards type sermon. And he preached it from Psalm 66 someplace. And he quoted the scripture. He never didn't have notes. He, I would just kind of hit him in the side like a jukebox to remind him where he was. And he, oh yeah, that's right. I'm at the Master Seminary. I said, Jonathan Edwards, third part sermon. And he'd go. Um, but everything he said was biblical. He just didn't sit there and quote the Bible, okay? And so don't judge a preacher especially your own. You can judge me. That's fine. I'm leaving. They know better because we open the Bible every Sunday, don't we? But a lot of the things I'm doing today, I'm not doing technical exegetical work with you, showing you from, from 84 scripture passages. We don't have the time for that. We're doing, we're flying by. I'm giving you concepts. Okay. One of the brothers, it was you, right? We had a little talk last night and he said, Something like, I might be putting words in your mouth, but it'll make you look good. So, he said something like, you know, you didn't read all, the, read all the texts or quote all the scriptures, but as you were going, as you were explaining, I was thinking, I was putting this, I was connecting uh, uh, dots. And I said something like, uh, you got it then. Go pass that on to somebody else. Because then when you listen to sermons... And when you read Christian books, and when you read the Word of God itself, you've got these connecting concept, concepts in your head, and then these individual bits of information are coming into your mind. And what our minds do, our minds look for, for hooks, you know, to put it on. That's connected. Those hooks are connected by wires of communication, by the way, in our brains. And so if you have the right hooks, uh, and then the more you train yourself, the information goes faster onto, onto those hooks. And then communication between those lines takes place. That's kind of what I'm trying to do here. So that when you go back and read the Gospel of Matthew, because I challenge, I told you last night, I said, read Matthew and Acts. When you read them, 
Think about this. This, Jesus, sufferings and glory, is that which the prophet said would happen. Just think about that concept and go read this three or four sermons in the book of Acts. You'll go, wow, you'll have an aha moment. Well, the apostles had aha moments too. The first century disciples had aha moments as well. And I have a list of them in my head that I'm not going to talk to you about. So, we're on the further delineations. Why did I get to John Gershner? Oh, we are going to use the Bible. That's right. John, John Gershner. Further delineations. Divine covenants, then, um, or a divine human covenant, is a bond between God and man, sovereignly conceived by God, sovereignly bestowed by God for man's benefit. They come from God, they're imposed upon us, are designed to benefit us, and contain ways and means to obtain the design benefit. Now, I'm going to give you one Old Testament example and one New Testament example. This is when we, we read the scripture text. But as I read this word, I thought, man, there might be people here that don't like this word imposed. God imposes upon man covenants. You know, because we're 21st century postmodernists. God, he's imposing Well, listen, he imposed his eternal decree in such a way that time existed, creation existed, and you came on the face of the earth. And so I don't think your attitude should be, he can't do that. He's already done it, okay? Tough, get over it, too late. There's a creator and there's creatures, okay? And we... I'm not him. We don't have... It's not like this. God's below us. We tell him what he can and can't do. You know, God, you can only go so far. We got you on a leash kind of thing, you know. It's the other way. We're the ones that are limited and are on a leash, okay? And owe our existence to him. So if he chooses to impose covenants upon us, Whatever the nature of the covenant is, whatever the promises, whatever the stipulations, whatever the blessings, whatever the curses, it's up to him. Now, I'm going to argue that if I was an ancient Israelite, I would have said, God, I don't like this covenant, but I know more than they do. So let's use two examples to try to see these concepts that I talked about, uh, God imposing... uh, Ways and means, promises, stipulations, benefits, blessings, curses, all those kinds of things. We won't get to all those. I think most of those concepts will be illustrated here. One Old Testament example would be God's covenant with ancient Israel. Sometimes we call it the Mosaic Covenant. And um, the Bible calls it the, the Old Covenant, um, the First Covenant, and it means by First Covenant, the first covenant with the national people of Israel as God's covenant nation. And uh, there are two texts. Exodus 19, 3 through 8. I'm not sure. Did I go to the next? Oh, no, it doesn't. Okay, stay at that slide. Thank you. Uh, let's just read Exodus 19, 3 through 8. Now watch. I'm not going to grab my Bible because I printed the text out here. So if anybody there is going, you said you're going to open your Bible, you didn't open your Bible. You're not teaching us the Bible. I have the biblical text here. 
right on this sheet. That's not a Bible, though. Those are your notes. Yeah, you can talk to your pastor afterwards about that. Exodus 19, 3-8. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. So this is after the historical act of God in redeeming, in saving Israel from Egyptian bondage, right? Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed... Now see that? If you will indeed obey my voice and we can supply if here, and if you will keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. See the if then? If you do this, then this is going to happen. This is a conditional covenant. Covenant. This has something to do with the obedience of the parties, recipients of this covenant. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So their status as God's holy nation and status as a kingdom of priests depends on their corporate obedience. By the way, God, is at two, God has two nations. An old nation, Israel, that he divorced because they violated the covenant, and a new nation, and it ain't the United States of America. Okay? It is called the church. The church is God's nation on the earth. Anyway, that was just a side note. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, the, set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Exodus 24, 1-8. Then he said to Moses, uh, this is Exodus 24, the first eight verses. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. These two texts illustrate that the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Israel, uh, that came from God through Moses was sovereignly imposed by God. Okay, Moses didn't kind of come up with this, this and say, 
you know, Yahweh, I got this idea. I think it'd be good if you come, we meet in this mountain, I'll bring the elders up, and you reveal this stuff to me. Okay, this comes from God. It had conditions that had to be met in order to attain its promised blessings. It also has a list of curses. Deuteronomy and Leviticus have texts in there that will list the curses. If you do this, here's what's coming. If you do this, here's what's coming. If you do this, I'm going to spit you out of the land. And what happened? They did it, and they got spit out of the land. Which tells us, by the way, that the national promises of Israel don't have to do with the eternal promises of the gospel, at least they didn't get the gospel and the eternal promises based on their obedience to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. One of the reasons they didn't get Christ by obeying the Mosaic Covenant. One of the reasons why we know that is because Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ before the Mosaic Covenant because the promise of Messiah predates the Mosaic Covenant. It's embedded in it, but it predates it. But anyway, let's keep going. It had conditions that had to be met in order to attain its promised blessings. Elsewhere, we're told that it can even be broken. My covenant, which they broke. Jeremiah, looking back, scolding the people, they broke God's covenant. Also, we see that the Mosaic Covenant was formally established through blood. So the conditions for this covenant to be met were based on... obedience to the covenant, the law of the covenant, and are non-negotiable for Israel as a nation. And we know that they sinned, excuse me, we know that they sinned, they violated the covenant and forfeited the promised blessings. And we're not going to go through any more text there, but some of the prom- one of the promised blessings was the, obviously the land. That was a big one. Um, fruitful seasons. We, this is Central California. Harvest. Um, those kinds of temporal things. The promise of eternal life through a mediator predates this covenant. God revealed that before this covenant. This covenant has to do with, with, as far as the nation goes, whether they're believers or unbelievers, because it was a mixed body. There were some who believed in the Messiah, and, and it looks to me like most didn't, though. Um, the promises and curses are on, a, are, are on a national basis and are for that nation and nation alone. But they also function on a different level, because when you read the entire of the Bible, you realize, for instance... Their form of worship was calculated by God to point elsewhere. The the, the blood of bulls and goats was typological. It pointed not to the blood of bulls and goats as an end in itself in the full expiation of sin and propitiation of God's wrath. That couldn't happen because they kept having to do it. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, but the blood of bulls and goats can tell us God's going to take away sins. And so when Jesus comes, he gives himself up once for all. But these can point there. So even though the Old Covenant's functioning on a horizontal national level, and it has to do with temporals, some of their temporals, temporal things, 
we're pointing to other things. You know, God, God often does that, where he acts, interprets his act, and reveals something that he's going, that he's going to do in the future, something similar, but on a greater scale, a greater level. Uh, all types are less than their antitypes. They call that... Chad's not here, so I can use big words. He got on Facebook. He said, don't use that word. I put this clause up there, a phrase up. They said, don't say that tonight. I said, I'm going to say it. It's in the notes. No, you know why I say it? Because if you stop and just... This is why we like R.C. Sproul. He uses Latin terms, right? You ever heard... And then you go use them, right? Because he gets up at the chalkboard or he defines the terms. So... I'm going to try to define the term, but I forgot what term. It, oh, es- oh, all uh, all uh, types uh, t- uh, types are less than their antitypes. So all this stuff in ancient Israel's covenant that's that's temporal, their 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 ceremonial ceremonial services is pointing elsewhere. It's pointing to something better. Antitypes are always better than their types. They call it, here it is, typological or anti-typological escalation. Isn't that great? That will make you sound smart. Okay. Tomorrow at church said, man, I saw a typological escalation reading the, uh, reading the Gospels this morning. Or anti-tip. I can't figure if it's typological or anti-typological uh, escalation. But you see the concept. You know what an escalator is. You're going up. Okay, so... The historical type is placed on by God in space and time on the earth to point to another historical but anti-type of fulfillment. And I'm doing it this way. It's greater. Okay. So all their acts and forms and sacrifices of worship and all that stuff, it was real. And they had to do it. And if they didn't, they violated the covenant. But it was also functioning to point elsewhere on an escalating... Um, You get it, right? Okay. Uh, if you don't get it, ask a question during the Q&A. There you go. So the conditions to be met were based on obedience to the law of God for ancient Israel. I assume you know your Bible well enough that you know the rest of the story with Israel, right? It got to the point where God got fed up with them. I said, look, I told you. And... And how he tells them is, is through the prophets. Remember I said, the prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys. They scold the people. They don't just scold the people, by the way. They, 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 they remind the people of hope in the future. So that's our Old Testament example of our definition of uh, divine covenant, covenant between God and man. Let's look at one New Testament ones in, in Hebrews 10, 15 through 22. That's the text I want to read. And then make some observations. I need to go faster so I can finish when I said I would. Here's the text. And the, he, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. Now, I have a, a New American Standard Version. I don't know what versions are out there. But when the New Testament and the New American st- Standard, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's all in capitals, Okay. So, 
Here we have, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. That's the writer of Hebrews. By the way, who's the writer of Hebrews? What do you think? Who says that? It's a free book in the back. In his library. Um, (laughs) Paul is quoting the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, this concept, I will remember their sins no more, is in more places than just Jeremiah, by the way. Jeremiah, uh, and it's, it's elsewhere in the Old Testament. As far as the East is from the West, you know, all those kinds of things. And do you, do you think that God uh, has a, a memory, a weak memory, a selective memory? I'll remember them no more. Oh, yeah, you sinned. I forgot. It can't mean that, right? It, it's, it's creaturely language. We remember things no more. So, like a man would forget something and therefore not hold you accountable for it, God's not going to hold us accountable for our sins. So this is a promise that's... This is a different kind of promise than he gave Israel. He said, I'm going to hold you accountable for your sins. You violate the covenant, there, there's, there's curses coming. And the curses came upon, came upon them. So then, then verse 18, Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is a reference to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, I think I say up there. In Jeremiah 31, 32, we are told that this new covenant, this promise, Jeremiah, if he's a prophet over here in the Old Testament Bible timeline, he's over here. The Mosaic covenant was over here. It's violated. And he's reminding them that not only did you violate the covenant, which they broke, but he's promising a new covenant. This is the only time in the Old Testament, by the way, the phrase new covenant is used. It's not the only time the new covenant's promised. It's the only time the phrase new covenant is used, which we learn from that, that Bible writers can mean new covenant without using the phrase new covenant. You know, sometimes you say, the word's not in the text. That word's not there. But what if the concept is? In different words. We do that all the time. I'm trying to think of an illustration of that with the Giants. It's not coming through. Maybe some of you Dodgers fans can think. You can't remember back far enough when the Dodgers won three out of five, right? So. Kirk Gibson's home run, was that was pretty cool. I, I did like that. But you lost that series, didn't you? (laughs) 
not like they broke it. It is this new covenant in, in this new covenant as well. The law of God is written on the hearts of of everyone in the covenant. Now, um, some people take that Jeremiah promise. I will write my law in their hearts as if God had never tinkered with people's hearts before in conjunction with his law. As if it was an absolutely new promise that had never that the spirit of God had never done anything to a soul and make it more pliable toward obeying the law of God. If you read the Psalms, you know that's not the case. The promise here is that everyone in this covenant gets all the blessings of it. That's what's different. Well, let's just keep going. Obedience to the law is not a condition of this covenant. It's not a condition for entrance into it. It's not a condition for remaining into it. It is a blessing. It is a gift of this covenant. That's a big difference. In the new covenant, there's forgiveness of sins for everyone in the covenant. What sinners need is provided for in this covenant and not due to their obedience to God's law. That's very important as well. Everything we need is provided for us. This sounds like, this is good news, isn't it? Sounds like the gospel in covenantal language. By the way, the only reason the gospel is good news is because Christ... Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he's going to do it. Either get out of his way or get with the program or whatever you want to look at that. He's going to save sinners. The blessings of the new covenant are attained through faith, um, not works. Um, let me read Hebrews, Hebrews uh, 10. 19 to 22. I want to accentuate something here. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, forgiveness was already there. And this came about through faith. The blessings of the new covenant are attained through faith, not works. In other words, faith is the condition, if you want to call it, of this covenant. It is the means through which one enters into this covenant and enjoys the blessings of it. But, you know, historically people said, oh, if faith is a mean, a condition, then it's a work. You can call it a work if you want. But by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God. It's a gift. Okay? Okay, the condition is supplied by who? God. So the condition is also a conferred blessing. If faith is a condition to get receive the, the blessings of the new covenant, if faith is a condition, it's also a conferred blessing. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, I think it means the entire gift of salvation which comes to sinners through the means of faith. And that, not of yourselves. The whole thing's the gift of God. I remember I had a seminary professor. It wasn't John MacArthur. So don't pick on John MacArthur. Um, I had a seminary professor. There were some Calvinistic students there, you know. Ooh, I used the C word. Sorry. The students there believed in the sovereignty of God. You know, God saved sinners. We're dead. We're, we're going to hell. And the Holy Spirit comes and infuses life into us. Then we turn, okay? The Spirit makes us turn by His gracious work and, and all that stuff. So this is flying around the seminary at the time. And, and um, my, my wife knows a guy that was a big part of that and said a lot of dumb things back then, didn't he? Me. Cage stage, you know, they call it. Um, anyway, this one professor, we were saying the faith's a gift of God. And he says, no, 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 that's not how that text reads. And he pulls out his Greek text and he starts talking through Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And his basic argument was, uh, it's not faith that's the gift of God. It's the salvation that comes by grace through faith. Which didn't help his argument. Okay, it made more things a gift of God than just faith. You mean the whole thing's a gift of God, including faith? So his argument actually helped, you know, the other side. You can't, there's any way you slice Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace through the means of faith and the whole design of salvation and the means that, that receives it. Faith, that's all a gift of God. We're, we're, and Paul had already told us, we must have already forgotten, first part of Ephesians 2, you being dead in sin. By the way, that's a way to look at Ephesians 2.1. You being dead in sin. Okay, that's the verse. The, the, uh, the verb doesn't come to like verse 4. God made you alive. You were in this state of deadness and sin and God did something. You put all the connect all the theological dots, you know, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Unless a man is born from above, he can't see, which is a metaphor. He can't be saved unless life is infused into us by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus. So anyway, faith is a condition and a conferred blessing. That which is required to gain the blessings of the new covenant are conferred or given. So all of that it re- might require, it gives. That's a different kind of covenant than the national covenant with ancient Israel. The new covenant provides all that it requires, unlike the Mosaic covenant. The blessings of the new covenant are not conditioned on what we do in relation to God's law, but wholly upon what Christ did and receiving him through faith apart from works. Um, I don't think I mentioned this hymn to, to sing, and I don't want to sing it, but I'm going to quote a hymn, A Debtor of, to Mercy Alone. There's a line in here some of you will probably be familiar with. Listen to these words. A debtor to mercy alone of covenant, mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which his goodness began 
the arm of his strength will complete. It's hard not to preach this, isn't it? I mean, look at that. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. Whatever God begins in the realm of saving a sinner, he completes it. He brings it to its end. He's going to see to it. That's why we can say, we can be confident. We're going to glory. And nobody's going to stop us. It's not because of our strength. It's not because, you know, I have more oomph in my faith than she does or he does. It has nothing to do with oomph. It has everything to do with the, not the temperature of our faith, but the object of our faith. The object or bullseye of my faith. Who do I, or what do I trust to get me to glory? The only answer that's going to make it through the last day is Jesus. Remember I said, whenever I ask a question, the answer is usually Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. Only Him can get us there. And that's what this hymn writer is writing about. His, uh, His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now nor are things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. Nothing can sever his soul, my, uh, my soul from his love. Nothing. You say, well, I'm, I'm weak. Nothing. Well, sometimes I doubt. Well, sometimes I, I backslidden and it's pretty ugly. Listen, Christians make a mess of their life. We mess up a lot. Sometimes it's ugly. And it's, sometimes it's so bad, churches need to discipline true elect-believing sinners that are in sin. Okay? But even that, the true ones, whether they feel it or not, God's going to bring them back. My name from the palms of His hands, eternity will not erase. Here's the line I think you might be uh, recognized. Impressed on His heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. That's what this new covenant is getting at. It's that. All those things, the forgiveness of sins, um, having the law written on our heart, the gift of the Spirit, and and the assurance that comes with it. All that has to do with not what we do, okay? Not even the fact that we believe, but the facts that we believe and the object of our faith in terms of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. So a a divine human covenant is a bond between God and man, sovereignly conceived and bestowed by God for man's benefit. I'm finished.